We're in Psalm 22, as Gino said. We're gonna look at verses 14 through 21 tonight. Kind of camped out on this verse one. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've taken a stand on this over the years that God the Father did not forsake his son. I think verse 24 of Psalm 22 proves it, or at least it gives the argument credibility. In 24, it says, he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Since it seems so controversial to say Jesus was unforsaken, let me marshal three other passages of Scripture. John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. John 16, 32, this is the night of his crucifixion, Jesus said, you disciples will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And Jesus was anticipating the cross at that moment. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, indicating a unity between Father and Son. Now, regardless of the position we take on that particular issue, the psalm proceeds, and in these middle verses, we have a description of the crucifixion itself. Crucifixion did not begin with the Romans. I often hear that they invented crucifixion, but uh, historically, uh, you know, the internet is good for some things. You know, you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but uh, you can easily check things out, which I recommend that we do before we put them on Facebook. Uh, but if something sounds weird, guess what? It is, uh, and it didn't really happen. But anyway, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. It was a method of execution that had developed centuries earlier in the na- uh, ancient Near East. The Medes and the Persians practiced this gruesome uh, execution method, as well as the Carthaginians and the Egyptians. And later it was adopted among the Greeks and finally the Romans in the first century. Crucifixion was mentioned in history from about the 6th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D. The Roman Emperor Constantine banned crucifixion out of reverence for Jesus Christ. The Romans called it by its Latin word crucifixus, which means to fix on a cross. The 1st century Roman cross consisted of two large wooden beams, a stake, and a cross beam. The crossbeam was locked into place at the very top of the perpendicular stake or near the top. There were various methods of performing the execution. Usually the condemned man, after being whipped, or we would say scourged, uh, dragged or carried on his shoulders the crossbeam of his cross to the place of punishment, where the upright shaft was already fixed in the ground. Stripped of his clothing, either then or earlier at the scourging, he was bound fast with outstretched arms to the crossbeam or nailed firmly to it through the wrists. The crossbeam was then raised high against the upright shaft and made fast to it about 9 to 12 feet above the ground. Next, the feet were tightly bound or they could be nailed to the upright shaft. A ledge inserted about halfway up the upright shaft gave some support to the body. The evidence for a similar ledge at the feet is rare and late. So there really wasn't a foot uh, plate so much as there was one halfway up. Over the criminal's head would be a, a notice stating his name and his crime. Death apparently caused by exhaustion or by heart failure could be hastened by shattering the legs with an iron club so that shock and asphyxiation soon ended your life. Now David, the psalmist, was born, we think, around 1040 B.C. 
That means his writing here of Psalm 22 predated crucifixion as a, por- a form of uh, execution by several centuries. It makes Psalm 22 all the more remarkable in that he accurately described the physical experiences of Jesus on the cross way before crucifixion was conceived or, or certainly used as a form of execution. And so the middle verses here, verse, beginning in verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. Now, a few of these comments could apply to any number of things, but some are quite specific to the agony of crucifixion. He says, I am poured out like water. We would label this dehydration. Blood loss from the Roman scourging would by itself cause severe dehydration. Remember, too, some hours earlier, Jesus had sweat great drops of blood while wrestling in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, too, he would have perspired profusely both carrying the cross and on the cross. Dehydration, of course, very serious. It can lead to any number of physical symptoms, including eventually delirium and unconsciousness uh, if left untreated. And so certainly uh, this is a description of what's happening to the Lord on the cross. It says, all my bones are out of joint. Some years ago, a medical doctor, David Terasaka, wrote an article, Medical Aspects of the Crucifixion of Jesus Christ. How many of you have read that? It's a, it's a classic. It's, if you want to know more about the actual physicality of crucifixion, I recommend it. And uh, it's available online free of charge. Regardless, Jesus out of joint bones, the good uh, doctor wrote this. He said, when the cross was erected upright, there was tremendous strain put on the wrists, arms, and shoulders, resulting in the dislocation of the joints. And so when the psalmist here declares Uh, prophetically, all my bones are out of joint. It it is an accurate description of what would happen to a person who is being crucified. My heart is like wax. I'm not sure what to make of this wax heart analogy. I'm really not. J. Vernon McGee, though, says this, Jesus died of a broken heart. Many doctors have said that a ruptured heart would have produced what John meticulously recorded in his gospel, One of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. That's from John 19. McGee says, let me paraphrase that. I saw that Roman soldier put the spear in his side, and there came out blood and water, not just blood, but blood and water. John took note of that and recorded it. May I say to you, Jesus died of a broken heart. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. No surprise here that the Lord would be thirsty and lack moisture. They pierced my hands and my feet. Whoa, this is definitely uh, crucifixion. I can count all my bones. The stress on the hanging body and the dislocation of the joints would accentuate the presence of the bones. And gruesomely, some of his bones would have been exposed by the scourging he'd received as the lashes would hit the back and come across the front. Uh, it's, it's not uh, unthinkable that you could see some of the Lord's ribcage. Now, there was a prediction that not a bone of his body would be broken. Psalm 34, 20 says that, and John records it in John 19. 
It was possible, first of all, to drive the nails in such a way as to avoid breaking any bones. And we see that Jesus dismissed his spirit on the cross before the Roman soldiers would need to break his legs in order to hasten his death. And his death would have had to have been hastened otherwise because it was uh, the Sabbath and the Jews would have wanted him off the cross uh, before the Sabbath began. And so you'd be really hard-pressed to identify another form of execution that had all of these elements. We have no idea what David was going through when he wrote this psalm. Uh, And I like what Peter says in the New Testament. He said concerning the prophets, he said, uh, essentially he said they didn't know what they were writing about. They desired to look into these things, but they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure David, whatever he was going through at the time, was scratching his beard a little bit and thinking, huh, I wonder what I'm describing uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we certainly, with the benefit of hindsight and history uh, and the completed Bible, we know that he is uh, describing Jesus Christ's experiences on the cross. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Jews regularly called Gentiles dogs, But I hardly think that this expression would ever be found on the lips of Jesus. Now, it's true, the Syrophoenician woman who came seeking a healing from Jesus for her child was referred to by the Lord as a dog, but the word Jesus chose was one that described a cherished pet, not a mongrel. He wasn't being derogatory towards the Syrophoenician woman as if she were, uh, it wasn't a racial slur in that sense. He was just saying, hey, you know, uh, the, 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 you know, you're, you're not part of Israel. Uh, and so this derogatory reference uh, might be still another reference to demonic forces that were surrounding the cross. We talked about this on Sunday in our study in Matthew. We really don't know what goes on in the realm we cannot see. We get an occasional glimpse of angelic demonic realm in the Bible, We know from Daniel that angels oppose each other and they fight each other. Uh, Daniel was praying and Gabriel was dispatched to give him some really exciting information about the history of Israel. And the prince of Persia suddenly uh, stopped Gabriel and they fought until Michael came, the archangel, and tapped him out. And then they fought while Gabriel went on his mission. And then uh, Gabriel talks about other angelic uh, encounters that they were going to have. And so we know that there's some kind of warfare that goes on between angels. We know from the Revelation that angels war against each other because it describes war in heaven and Michael and his angels and the devil and his angels. And we know that angels can wield swords. I don't know that they need them in certain situations, but many times they're seen in Scripture with swords. And so something, things are going on in the spiritual realm that we do not normally see uh, Elijah, uh, you know, had the, the eyes of his servant open to see angelic armies surrounding them, uh, those kinds of things. And so, uh, who can say what was happening spiritually to the sinless Son of God while he was surrounded by demons on the cross? And so, I believe this reference to the bulls of Bashan we saw last week and to the dogs uh, has to do with a, uh, demonic uh, forces that are around the cross. It says in verse 18, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Most of the secular historical sources I consult to say this was not a regular custom. It was uh, quite simply a prophecy that we see fulfilled 
at the cross. Even if it was a regular custom, the Roman soldiers certainly aren't looking to fulfill prophecy. They're not reading Psalm 22 on their tablet and saying, hey, it, about this time we should be dividing his garments to, we want to make sure we can fulfill Jewish prophecy. And so either way, it's a tremendous fulfillment because we see that this is exactly what happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. By the way, Christians cite this as a prohibition on gambling or games of chance. Uh, while I think gambling is stupid, uh, I could use other words, but we're in mixed company, uh, and it can be sin for individuals, casting lots was something believers did with God's blessing. Uh, there, there was nothing necessarily wrong with casting lots. And so it just, we want to be careful the conclusions we draw, we want to be thoughtful. We're going to always first try to understand the Bible in its original context. Uh, and so uh, if this is your proof text that we shouldn't go to the palace after study, uh, you're wrong about that. You, you shouldn't go to the palace after study uh, because the odds are against you. Uh, you know, uh, gambling is so interesting to me because really all you have to do is drive into Las Vegas and figure out that the house always wins, right? I mean, you know, they're not, they're not building those casinos on their losings. Uh, they're, they're building them on their winnings, and they're, it's pretty opulent. If, if I haven't been to Vegas, I don't think, since I've been a Christian. I'm not bragging. It's just the fact. But uh, in fact, the last time I was in Vegas, the Riviera was still a hotel. Uh, I, I think they exploded. Isn't that one of the ones they blew up? But uh, no, it's still there? Yeah, so I busted you now. But anyway... <laughs> That's what that was all about. No, I don't, even know. I don't even know who said that. So someone over here out of my vision. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, mean, serious, I mean, seriously, all you have to do, even I, I, don't, I don't know if I've ever been to the palace, to tell you the truth, but I've been by there. I, I think it's kind of opulent, but you know, all you have to do is drive into it. No, you don't go to these places. There's not hobos there in, in tattered clothes saying, would you please, hey, you know, let's play you know, some cards. Maybe I'll win a few dollars and stuff. So you know, every now and then somebody wins some money, but uh, it's rare. So uh, you know, there's plenty of reason not to, to gamble. I can tell you over the years, I've seen lots of families ruined by gambling. Uh, I remember one situation. This was a couple that didn't come to our church, but they, they came for counseling, and the husband you know, had his own credit cards that the wife didn't know about. He had a gambling habit and then a problem, and so he would get credit cards. He was like forty dollars or $50,000 in debt on credit cards that his wife didn't know anything about. Uh, and um, it, it led up to him attempting suicide, and I mean, it's just bad, you know, gambling is, it, it's, it's not something that you want to get involved with, really. Uh, now, if you're a professional card player, uh, if that's your living and livelihood, uh, more power to you, I guess, uh, you know, but uh, the average Christian gambling is, it, it, it's, the odds are against you. Uh, but anyway, be careful, you know, what scriptures you use when you're citing these things. Um, Scene of almost indescribable suffering and horror and shame, the cross of Jesus Christ suddenly has a declaration of hope in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Since he died physically... It would seem that the sword and the power of the dog and the lion's mouth and the horns of the wild oxen 
must all refer to spiritual things, to spiritual foes from whom the Lord was certainly delivered. In other words, you know, he's, he's not asking to be delivered from death. The Lord knew he had to die on the cross. He's asking to be delivered from his spiritual foes, and we're certain that he was. Jesus died, but his death, as we saw again on Sunday, was a victory over death. The devil would have been better served keeping Jesus off the cross. Indeed, as we've pointed out, Satan tried to kill Jesus many other ways throughout history and during his lifetime. He started to uh, kill Jesus by trying to prevent the promised Savior from being born. Perhaps thinking Adam and Eve's son Abel was the promised seed, Satan incited Cain to kill his brother. Satan is described as a murderer from the beginning. And there's an indication that he incited Cain to kill Abel uh, because they had the promise. Satan, Adam and Eve, they all had the promise that God made in the garden right after they had sinned that he was going to come through the seed of the woman and be a savior. For all they knew, it was, it was Abel. And so Satan decided to have Cain kill Abel as a, a way of destroying uh, the Messiah. That didn't work. And so Satan next tried to corrupt the entire human race during the times of Noah by having fallen angels produce unnatural offspring with human women. And so God had to wipe out the earth and save just Noah and his family. Satan tried genocide when Pharaoh ordered the midwives to kill all the Jewish babies. That's what that was all about. The book of Esther records a second attempt at genocide of the Jews. As Haman thought he was going to have the upper hand by getting the king to decree the uh, death of the Jews. But providence raised up Esther at just the right time. When Jesus was born, as we saw in the video, Satan incited King Herod to kill all the infants under two years of age, seeking to kill the Messiah before he could go to the cross. When Jesus began his public ministry, the crowd at his synagogue wanted to throw him off a cliff. They brought him to the edge of a cliff, and he passed through unharmed among them. Then the devil tempted Jesus to avoid the cross, first in the wilderness temptation by offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world without having to die, and second by inciting Peter to discourage Jesus from completing his mission just before the crucifixion, and who knows how many other times in between. In the wilderness temptation, uh, one of the gospels says that the devil left him until a more opportune time, and so he may have come many times with that temptation. Satan might have been hoping, as we talked about Sunday, that the Sanhedrin would stone Jesus to death for blasphemy. Uh, but they, by God's providence, they urged Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Having failed for some 4,000 years to prevent the first coming of Jesus or to kill him before the cross, he's trying to thwart the second coming of the Lord, primarily by seeking the genocide of all the Jews. And so I, I believe that one of Satan's... Uh, key strategies in these end times, obviously, is to destroy all Jews because God has made promises to the Jews that he must keep. And if, the, if, if Satan can kill every last Jew, uh, then God's promises to, will fail and his second coming will fail. Now, how, according to the scholars, the last part of verse 21 breaks off linguistically from the rest and is a separate exclamation where after saying these things, then the, the, the person says, you have heard. 
And that's just to emphasize that Jesus on the cross was certain that he'd been heard and that his deliverance was complete. From an earthly perspective, he was forsaken, he was abandoned, and he was cursed. The people at the cross said, if, if the Lord is with you, call upon him and he will save you. Come down off the cross. Uh, from an earthly perspective, he was forsaken, abandoned, and cursed. Nothing could be further from the truth. God was at that very moment in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It wasn't that just all things work together for good and that something good was going to come out of his suffering. I mean, something amazing was happening at the cross as God was uh, reconciling the world to himself so that you and I could be saved. Death was being defeated. The devil and his forces were being vanquished. When you are suffering in any way, when you and I suffer, and we do and we will, from an earthly perspective, you seem forsaken, you seem abandoned, you can even seem cursed. Something else is going on, something spiritual is always going on in our lives. You must believe in your heart that God could never leave you, never forsake you. That scripture where Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, uh, I remember my pastor in San Bernardino, John Miller, would always say in the original language, it was very strong, I will never, no, not ever, never, ever leave you or forsake you. Do we feel forsaken sometimes? I, maybe you don't, but I do. Ever feel abandoned, sometimes feel cursed? Like, man, what is happening to me and why? And, and from an earthly perspective, it, it seems that way, but it's not possible if you're a child of God we need to be able to cry out and believe you have heard. That cry from the cross, you have heard. Uh, or that cry from Psalm 22, something that we need to believe as well. Amen?